Ben, that may be like the deepest children's sermon ever. <laughs> you know, as Ben said, we started last week as we're looking through uh, what we believe and looking at the most basic core of all of theology, and that's what we believe about God. And that really is foundational to everything else that we talk about, and it's a huge topic. We just skimmed the surface last week, but there was one core truth that we wanted to make sure we emphasized, and that is that the God of the Bible is the only one true and living God, and that we can know Him both through His attributes, what He is like, and through His activity, what He does. And we looked at that last week. Now, we briefly touched on what Ben talked about here, and that is the Trinity. We looked at it very, very briefly. So I want us to start there this week, explore that a little bit more, and then we're going to move on to talking about specifically God the Father. Now, you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, but the truth of the Trinity is found throughout the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The doctrine of the Trinity is summed up really well in the Baptist faith and message this way. We looked at this last week, but we'll put it up on the screen again. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. E.Y. Mullins was one of the architects of the very first Baptist faith and message back in 1925, and he very wisely advised us on how we should approach this very mysterious subject. He wrote this. He said, The Bible does not explain the Trinity. It simply gives us the facts. He says, The briefer the definition of the Trinity, the better for practical purposes. God is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, These have personal qualities, yet God is one. This is the New Testament teaching. Beyond this, we tend toward speculation. Well, I certainly don't want to be guilty of speculation this morning. Uh, If the biblical writers weren't inspired to explain the Trinity to us, we should probably conclude that it's simply a truth we must accept by faith. That being said, I want to use that brief definition from the Baptist Faith and Message to point out two key ideas to try to help us somewhat maybe start to wrap our minds around this doctrine of of the triune God. Notice that it says the Father, Son, and Spirit have distinct personal attributes, yet one divine essence, nature, or being. In other words, they are three persons in one Godhead. And the key distinctions are between these phrases, personal attributes and divine essence, nature, or being. Now, there's a diagram, a very classical diagram of the Trinity. I saw this on a a board in a Sunday school class uh, here. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm going to be talking about that on Sunday. And, And when we look at this diagram, it clearly tells us that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, But the Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equally and co-eternally God. They possess the very same divine essence, nature, and being. Each is fully and always God. Now that means that they are not partly God. It's not that God is divided up into three puzzle pieces, and if you put them together, then you have God. That's not what the Trinity means. It doesn't mean that each are taking turns at being God. It's not that God changes modes like you're changing the dial. 
kids, there used to be dials on your TVs and you would turn it to get different channels. It's not that it's like, okay, now Jesus is God, now the Father is God, now the Spirit is God. That's not what that means. It's not how that works. And it's not just God playing different roles, though they do each have a different role to fulfill. And this is where the analogies, like what Ben shared with us, very well-meaning analogies, this is where they all start to break down. Uh, in addition to the one about water, maybe you've heard the Trinity explained with an egg, that you've got the shell, the white, and the yolk, but it's one egg. Or maybe you've heard somebody say, it's sort of like, I am both a son, a father, and a brother, but I'm one person. Those kinds of analogies do break down about as quick as that snow melted last Saturday. And a new analogy I read this past week was that the United States government has three branches, but it's one government. You know, so you have the legislative, the judicial, and the executive branch, and they are all co-equally together. They, all, they, have, they have equal authority and power, supposedly, and, uh, but they are all one unified government. That, that's a pretty good analogy, but, but no analogy can really capture the amazing and beautiful truth of the Trinity that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, yet there's only one God. They are of the same essence and nature, but each having distinct personal attributes and unique roles to play in God's creative and redemptive work. I want to look at a few of those ways. Uh, the first is creation. How, the, how does the Trinity work in creation? And if you turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen at Genesis chapter 1, I want to look at verses 1 through 3 and verse 26 real quick. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now if you drop down to verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now who is God talking to when he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness? Well, some people want to explain that by saying, well, you know, it's sort of like the royal we, like you sometimes read in literature. But that's not consistent with the Hebrew mind. They didn't think like that, and that's not consistent with the rest of the Bible. Others want to say, well, God is talking to the heavenly host, to the angels. The problem with that is that the angels are not equal with God. They're created beings like we are. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. No, the only thing that makes sense is that God is speaking to himself. In the plural. Now, when we look at the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So which is it? It's both. That's God is both. He is three persons in one God. And that's why God speaks to himself, saying us and our and we. Now, look back at those first three verses of Genesis chapter 1 again. And you'll see each person of the Godhead, the Father, in the beginning God, the Father, He is the one who orchestrates and initiates creation by His will. This all came from His mind. The Spirit, it says, was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit is there like a mother bird, flapping its wings over the nest, waiting for life to be born. The Spirit is the one who is bringing life to all of creation, especially to the first man and woman as God breathes His Spirit into them and they become living souls. And God does this creating how? By His Word. He speaks and the creation comes to be. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is that Word that God spoke by which all things 
were created. Look at John 1, 1 through 5 on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness does not overcome it. Does that sound a little familiar? To Genesis chapter 1, John is intentionally pointing us back to the creation account. Jesus is the Word of God by which light and, and all things were spoken into existence. So we see in creation all three persons of the Trinity at work. We also see it in Jesus' ministry. Now, we see that, uh, you know, you know and people get confused about Jesus because they don't understand the Trinity. And, and, and I've heard several people say, you know, is, when Jesus is praying in the garden, is he just talking to himself? No. The Son is talking with the Father. The Father and the Son are co-equally, co-eternally God. They are both the one and true living God. We talked about last week, but they are distinct in person. That's why Jesus talks about doing the Father's will and saying and only doing what the Father wants Him to say and do. It's why Jesus can say at one point that He will come and live within His followers, but then He promises the Helper, the Spirit, will come and indwell us and empower us and remind us of all things that Jesus taught us. But one of the most striking examples is what Ben mentioned, and that is at the baptism. Let's look at that in Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him, the Son of God, and a voice from heaven, the Father God, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity right there. And then in salvation, we see the Trinity at work. Now, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and I invite you to read that whole passage, uh, 3 through 14, but we're, I'm going to point out just a few verses. But as you look through that, you will see mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Spirit several times. And basically it tells us that in salvation, salvation originates with the Father. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, For He, God the Father, which He mentions in verse 3, God blessed is God the Father, for He chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless and love before Him. So the Father is the one who chooses. He chooses the way in which we are saved, and that is by being in Jesus, in Christ. But then salvation was accomplished by Jesus, by the Son of God. Look at verse 7. In Him, in Jesus, the Beloved One, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And then salvation is both proclaimed and promised through the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14. In Him, in Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His, God the Father's glory. So the Spirit is at work in salvation to the glory of God the Father because we are sealed in Jesus through the Spirit, all persons of the Trinity at work in our salvation. And we could do this with sanctification, with how the church works, with prayer, with the inspiration of Scripture, with the return of Christ in our worship. We could look time and again throughout the Bible. It is made clear that there is one God who reveals Himself and works in the world through three persons, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I'll, I'll end this part on the Trinity with one more verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is such an essential part of Orthodox Christian belief that if you reject the Trinity, you're rejecting Christianity, which is why Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Unitarians cannot be considered Christian. Yet it's a mystery. It is hard to wrap our minds around. It seems strange to us. It's beyond our finite mind's capability to fully grasp. But you know what? There's lots of things that are hard for me to understand. Lots of things I don't fully comprehend that seem strange to me. That doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that I'm limited in my understanding of them. Now, uh, I would say any questions, but we don't have time for that. So let's move on to God the Father. And the Baptist Faith and Message talks about God the Father like this. God as Father reigns with providential care over His universe, His creatures, and the flow of the stream of human history according to the purpose of His grace. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-wise. God is Father in truth to those who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is fatherly in His attitude toward all men. Now, as much as we might struggle with the idea of the Trinity, some people really struggle with this idea of God as Father because they carry deep wounds from their earthly fathers. You know, maybe, maybe you had a father that was absent or abusive or just apathetic. You know, and, and, and no father is perfect. You know, even those of us that had, had good experiences with our dads, we had good fathers, even they weren't perfect. They made mistakes. I know I sure do. I make plenty of mistakes as a father. But the beauty is that God is the perfect father. So no matter what negative experiences you have had, hurtful experiences you've had with your father, know that God the Father is the exact opposite of that. And no matter how wonderful your experiences were with your father, know that God the Father is a thousand upon a thousand times better than that. So when the Bible talks about God as Father, we should let the Bible define for us what that means. What kind of Father is God? What is He like as our Father? How does He embody and model what fatherhood should be to the rest of us? Theologian Karl Barth writes this, It is not that there is first of all human fatherhood and then so-called divine fatherhood, but just the reverse. True and proper fatherhood resides in God. And from this fatherhood, what we know as fatherhood is derived. In other words, God's fatherhood is foundational to our entire concept and idea of what a father is. And whatever it is we long for from our earthly fathers, that is just a reflection of the deeper longing we have for God our Father. To know Him and to experience Him in our lives. And so to help us better understand God is our Father and His love and His care for us. I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer. Because in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus powerfully and beautifully depicts for us what kind of Father our God is. So let's look at that together. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us 
from the evil one. So first we see Jesus tells us that God the Father is present. He's present, our Father in heaven. Now when Jesus says that, Jesus isn't saying that God is in some far off distant place just kind of looking down on us from a distance. Rather, to say our Father in heaven is a Jewish way of saying that God is present. Not far away, it's the opposite of what we might think, that God is present and in control. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's something that's, that's close to us. It's a reality that's all around us, like the air that we breathe. God is present with His children. Now, we see this beautifully depicted in the 23rd Psalm, don't we? God, our, our Father, is present with us, like a shepherd. Whether we're in good, pleasant places, like green pastures and beside still waters and on paths of righteousness, or whether we're in difficult places, like going through the valley of the shadow of death and being surrounded by our enemies. He is with us, leading us, comforting us, preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And, and not only that, not only is God leading us, And walking with us, it says that He is coming up behind us with goodness and with mercy. In other words, we are surrounded on all sides by the presence of our shepherd, our Father. Now, the big theological word we might use for this is that God is omnipresent, meaning that that no one and nothing escapes God's attention or God's presence. David asked the question in Psalm 139.7, he says, Where can I go to escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then he goes on to describe that no matter where he goes, God sees him, knows him, and is present with him. And that's the key. That's the beautiful truth that God our Father is present. He sees you. He knows you. He is with you always. Secondly, though, Jesus tells us that God the Father is also pure. He says, your name be honored as holy, or maybe you've learned it, hallowed be thy name. Jesus is saying that the Father's name is holy and should be hallowed, should be treated like it's holy. And and we looked at this attribute last week. We talked about holiness and how it means to be set apart, to be different, to to be distinct, that God is holy because there's no one like Him. He's in a sphere all by Himself. He has no equal. He he is inherently righteous and just. He's 100% pure God. No lies, no evil, no wickedness, no darkness within him. He's exactly who he says he is. And again, this ties back into the idea of Trinity because in that idea of holiness is this picture of single-mindedness, of oneness. God is of one holy nature and essence. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet fully one, completely united in divine essence. There is no division, no doubt, no disagreement, no wavering within the Godhead. He is three persons who has one mind, one will, and one purpose. And because of this purity, this holiness and oneness, God is completely trustworthy. We can count on Him. We can know what to expect from our fathers. Maybe you had a dad that you didn't know what to expect. He could be angry about something one day and not the next. He could be angry one day and and, and seem like he didn't care the next day. That's not God the Father. We know what to expect with Him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not one way today and something different tomorrow. We talked about this last week too. He is consistent. He is unchanging. He is immutable. 
Because he is holy. He is one. He is present and he is pure. And he is also powerful. God the Father is powerful. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's power. For your will to be done in heaven, on earth, everywhere, that is power. God is the king and ruler of the universe. Heaven and earth belong to Him. And kings reign and rule with power and authority. The fancy word for this one is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. But what does God the Father do with that power and that authority? How does God use His omnipotence? Just three ways I'm going to throw out there. There's many more, but one, He creates. He uses His power to create. In Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the starry host by the breath of His mouth. Again, that's power. I mean, you can say something until you're blue in the face and it not happen, right? Parents, I mean, it happens, right? But when God speaks, galaxies come into existence. That's power. Secondly, He uses His power to save. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God uses His power to save us from sin and self and eternal damnation. And third, He uses His power to restore, to bring things back to life and to wholeness. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And He will raise us also. He will restore us to life. God our Father is present. He's pure. He's powerful. Those are His attributes. That's what He is like. But then in the rest of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus talks about what He does. What does the Father do? First, He tells us the Father provides. He tells us to pray, give us today our daily Bread, because God our Father meets our needs. He takes care of us. You might remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about this, about how how God the Father cares for the sparrows in the sky. He cares for the flowers in the field. How much more will He care for you and me? If we will trust and seek after Him, He will supply our needs. He says this in verses 31 through 33 of Matthew 6. He says, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat? We eat, what will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles, the pagans, those who don't know God, eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you as well. Our Father is a generously giving God. He promises to always provide for us what we need, not what we want, But what we need, in fact, in God's goodness, sometimes He purposefully doesn't give us what we want because He knows that it will be to our harm or to the detriment of others. Our God is a wise God and a good God. He gives us what He knows that we need. Jesus talked about in, in one parable that God the Father knows better than we do how to give good gifts to His children when we ask Him. And James tells us that God is the source of all good gifts. Again, another big theological word we might use to describe this is the word providence or God's providential care. It means that God provides for His children. He gives us everything we need. Again, go back to Psalm 23. Let's think about how it describes the ways our Good Shepherd provides for us so that we shall not want. He gives us green pasture to feed on, still waters to quench our thirst, 
restoration for our weary souls, guidance on life's path, comfort and protection in the dark valleys, a feast laid out for us in the presence of our enemies, anointing on our head, goodness and mercy pursuing us all the days of our lives, and an eternal home to dwell in. It's no wonder, David said, my cup runneth over. God is a God who provides richly, abundantly blessing us. Not only that, God the Father also pardons. The next request is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So not only is our Father a giving God, He is also a forgiving God. And forgiveness is so, God's heart is so bent toward forgiveness that God the Son set aside all that He had in heaven and He stepped down into this world, took on human flesh and blood, took our sins upon Himself on the cross, and died to provide salvation for you and for me. And that forgiveness, that salvation, is made available to everyone. Whosoever believes will not perish. Whosoever will may come. Or as John writes in 1 John 1, 7-9, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a God whose heart is bent toward giving and forgiving. He's a God who provides and a God who pardons. And finally, He is the Father who protects. Jesus ends the prayer, Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, when we are guilty of sin, no, I'm sorry, when, when, God, when God comes to us in our sin, in our struggles, to provide for us what we need because we're weak and we can't provide for ourselves sometimes, or we think we can, we like to think we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, don't we? You know, we think that God only helps those who help themselves. You've heard that expression. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. We are ultimately helpless. So God, our Father, comes to us in that state and He provides for us. He comes to us in our sin and our wickedness and He forgives us. Because there's nothing you and I can do to earn God's forgiveness. Nothing you and I can do to make up for the sin that we've committed. Because even one sin against an infinitely holy God is an infinite offense to Him. He cannot abide the presence of sin. There's nothing we can do to secure our own pardon. He has to give it freely. And we like to think that we are in control, right? We love security. We like to think that we've got our house secure and we've got our family protected and we've got our money protected. We love to think about security But then things happen. Stock markets crash. Wars break out. You get a diagnosis you didn't expect. You lose your job. The house burns down. That kind of stuff is really outside of our control, isn't it? We need our Father to be our protection. He is the source of our security. He is our shelter, our refuge, the rock, the harbor for our lives. He's the one to whom we must turn in trust. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God rescues. He rescues us from evil. He protects us in the face of trials. 
He doesn't necessarily keep the trials away from us, but He doesn't necessarily bring them to us as well. And He certainly doesn't bring temptation to us. Rather, God provides a way out from temptation. Yes, we will suffer problems and and difficulties and accidents and trials in this life. Jesus even said, you will have troubles in this world. Then He said, take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, God gets the last word. Cancer doesn't get the last word. Divorce doesn't get the last word. Your fire doesn't get the last word. God gets the last word. He will see you through whatever trials you face. James 1, again, tells us that our Father only gives good and perfect gifts. And James says He's never the source of temptation to sin. God will never tempt you to sin. Rather, He gives us a way out of those temptations. And when we do face the difficulties and the trials and the, and the uncertainties of life, James says that God gives us the wisdom and the strength not only endure them, but to even benefit from them. As God uses them to reveal more of Himself to us, to make us stronger, to help us mature in Christ's likeness. Remember, our Good Shepherd walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't give us a detour around it. He doesn't, give it, he doesn't let us go through it on our own. He goes with us through it. So we need not fear evil. He doesn't say that we'll have no enemies. He says, I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He is there to comfort us and to provide for us in the dark valleys and to protect us in the face of our enemies. These attributes paint such a powerful image of who the God the Father is, of how we can know Him and relate to Him and experience Him in our lives. So what difference does all this make? What difference does it make that God the Father is this kind of a God? Well, when we're guilty of sin, it makes a big difference that God our Father is pure, doesn't it? That He is holy, but also that He's gracious and merciful. Because He's pure, but He's also a God who pardons. He's holy but He's also a God who loves us and He does not leave us to our own devices. He he moved heaven and earth to come and rescue you because He is pure and because He pardons. That's why Jesus came to die for your sins. That's what the table, the elements we're about to partake of are all about, that God's grace and mercy are greater than your sin. It's not That doesn't downplay the severity of sin that elevates the amazing love and grace and mercy of God. That no matter who we are, what we've done, how bad you think you are, God loves you. Jesus died for you. God wants to shower you with His grace and with His mercy. But you have to trust in the Father's provision. Through the Son's sacrifice, as the Spirit convicts you of your sin and draws you in faith to Jesus. Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us that when that happens, and when we are in Christ... We know we belong to God. We know that He is our Father. It says that nothing can separate us from the Father's love. Paul says, Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears today nor our worries about tomorrow. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for you is unconditional, it's constant, it's eternal. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. You simply have God's love for you. 
You are His unique masterpiece. He created you in His image. You're the priceless treasure that He went to the greatest length and paid the highest price to secure for Himself. So when you feel weak, when your needs overwhelm you and you don't know where to turn, when you have more doubts and questions than you have answers and maybe you have some huge life-changing decisions to make, remember that your Father is powerful. There's nothing too hard for Him to do. There's nothing you face that's bigger than Him. No matter what Goliath stands in front of you, know that God, your Father, is bigger than that. He's greater than that. And He provides for our needs. And He protects us in life's storms. When we face our enemies. When the world seems to be crumbling all around us. And when we face those temptations that come, and they come, don't they? He provides a way out. When we feel alone, rejected, or betrayed, He is the Father who is present, who will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be with us always to the very end of the age. That's why this matters. It matters because it makes a huge difference in how we see our world, how we see ourselves, where we draw our comfort and our hope and our power and our strength. It all comes down to what do you believe about God? What kind of father is he to you? Now, if you want to know God as the kind of perfect father we've talked about this morning, you first have to be his child. Now listen, every single human being is a creation of God. Every human being is created in the image of God and loved immensely by God. Jesus died for every person. But until you put your faith and trust in what Jesus did to you, you're not God's child. You're His creation. But maybe today is the day for you to move from being creation to child. Paul uses the analogy of adoption, that we are brought into God's family by His choice, by the choice of the Father. And so today, if you want to know this presence and power, if you want to know the purity and then the provision and the pardon and the protection of the Father, you have to make sure you know the Son. What have you done with Jesus? If you want God to forgive you of all that you have ever done, if you want to know Him as your pure and holy Father, you must first come in faith to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And I know that I'm a sinner and I want you to forgive me of my sins because I can't do anything about them. I want you to live in me and help me to be the kind of person that you want me to be. That's what it means to be a Christian, to give your life to Christ, to surrender to His rule and reign in your life. And if you've not done that before, I invite you in just a moment to come today. Make that decision. Walk out of here knowing that God is your Father. And you are His son or daughter. You belong to Him. Now those of us that are Christians that belong to God and we know Him as our Father, we're not orphans. Listen, God doesn't save us and then try to leave us out on the street to fend for ourselves. No, when He saves us, He saves us into a family of faith. And maybe you've been... You know, you've been worshiping here, you've been coming here for a while, and you know in your heart that this is your spiritual home. This is where God wants you to be surrounded by the rest of His children, by your brothers and sisters in Jesus. We invite you to come and to say, you know what? God, my Father, has brought me here to this spiritual family, and I want to worship and serve and grow here with my family. We invite you to come and do that today. But, you know, maybe God is speaking to you in another way. I know this message and, and this Lord's Prayer and thinking about God as Father, it certainly strikes me as a dad. 
It convicts me. And so maybe what's hit home with you this morning is that you're not the kind of father or grandfather that you need to be. And you want to come this morning and you want to recommit yourself to say, Jesus, by your Spirit be at work in me and help me to be the kind of father God is. Help me to to be gracious and merciful. Help me to protect and to forgive. Help me to be more careful in the way I provide. Help me to be more like you in the way I relate to my wife, the way I relate to my children, my grandchildren, whatever God is speaking to your heart. Maybe He's saying something totally different to you than any of that. Whatever He is speaking to you, let's be attentive. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are thankful for Your goodness and grace and for Your holiness, Your purity and righteousness. We're thankful that You are a God who is constant and unchanging. You don't waver. We can rely upon You. Your Word is as true today as it was when it was written. You are the same God today that You were with Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus and Paul. And You are a God who relates to us as Father. You love us and You desire the best for us. And I thank You for that. Lord, whatever You're convicting people in this room about, whatever You're speaking to their hearts about, I pray that they would surrender and they would step out in faith Make whatever decision public they need to make. But beyond that, even as we step out these doors and go home, help us daily to commit to your will and your way, to grow in our relationship with you as our Father, and to be the kinds of men and women, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, children, brothers and sisters that you would have us to be. May we be formed more and more into the image of Christ. Prepare our hearts now as we sing, as we Respond to you, prepare us to partake of this Lord's Supper table. We ask it all in Jesus' holy name.